This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! $40,000 in gear gone, drones, moody landscapes, wide-angle black hole, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 337 for Sunday, April 30th, 2023. And before I get into this week's news stories from Petapixel, I wanted to remind all of you, if you're not already subscribed to the show, make sure you do so now. Later on today, I will be sitting down with Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake of Petapixel TV and having a nice chat with them. That'll, that episode will be released this coming Thursday, May 4th. Now, also, if you did not get in on it yet, you can still have time to get in on the Kickstarter campaign for the Platypod handle. You did already miss the early bird if you didn't jump on it Wednesday or Thursday before midnight Thursday night when the early bird pricing ended, but you still have plenty of time to support the campaign. And believe me, even though I've warned you many times that Kickstarter and Indiegogo are not online stores, you don't have to worry about losing your money to Platypod. All of Dr. Larry's projects have come to fruition and all of his backers have always received top-notch quality products. So you don't have to worry about jeopardizing your hard-earned cash. All right, let's head over to Petapixel and see what they have for us for this week. Photographer loses $40,000 worth of gear after it was blown up by SpaceX rocket. A photographer who set up nine cameras to capture the SpaceX Starship launch had six of them destroyed by chunks of concrete thrown from the launch pad. Scott Shalak regularly covers rocket launches for Space News and was present at the recent Starship launch from Texas that went up in smoke on April 20th. Quote, it turned out Elon was wrong that the concrete could handle one more launch without any protection, Shalak tells NBC2. The GoPros are destroyed. I did get the SD card out of it, and it's pretty amazing footage. Shulk's cameras were not the only ones destroyed in the launch, with the Reddit user posting shocking photos of his Nikon bodies and lenses that were wiped out by Starship. Schleich posted the awesome footage to his social media channels, where you can plainly see huge chunks of concrete flying towards the camera until one of them takes out the instrument. He also captured some incredible photos of the Starship launching, when, which Musk and SpaceX hope will one day take people to the moon and even Mars. Shulky appeared, or appealed to his favorite company on social media to replace his broken GoPro cameras. Quote, I personally lost all four of my GoPro 8 and 7s battling with the world's most powerful rocket at 16 million pounds of thrust, Nearly double what Artemis 1 launched at last year, he writes, while tagging the action camera company. I am a loyal GoPro user and advertiser for your company. Can you help me out to replace the equipment that didn't survive SpaceX Starship Super Heavy at Starbase, Texas? I could use your help. It's not just Schilke's camera gear that was destroyed. Federal agencies tell Bloomberg that the launch led to a 3.5-acre fire on state park land in Boca Chica State Park in Texas. 
arm of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And there are some amazing images in this article in the show notes that Scott posted that you can see um, of the actual launch itself, as well as his video uh, where the cameras get destroyed by the flying concrete. I highly recommend you check him out for yourself, and I hope he is able to get his cameras replaced before the next launch. Drones and pyrotechnics combine in an incredible light painting series. French visual artist Jadakan has been long passionate about photography. Since 2005, he has integrated light painting into his photography, and the technique is heavily utilized throughout Jadakan's impressive portfolio. Jadakan has started a new series called Phenomenons, or uh, yeah, Phenomena in English, that combines light painting techniques, drones, fireworks, and beautiful landscapes. Jodikin equipped drones with flammable powder to create the stunning photo series. While the pyrotechnics release sparks beneath the drone, Jodikin captures long exposure photographs from the ground. Quote, I sought to bring a new dimension of poetry and spirituality to the landscape through this series, he tells Petapixel. Jodikin adds that he explores the landscape as, bo uh, as both a subject and a canvas on which he can paint light. To prepare for his images, Jadakin explores and scouts locations during the day, trying to imagine what they will look like at night, and carefully plans the precise framing he'll utilize later. Quote, in each photograph, you can follow a circle of fire that wanders from landscape to landscape to transform them into unknown and lunar places. This round shape inspires unity and harmony in the images while provoking a feeling of strangeness, Jadakin explains. He aims to provide the viewers with a sense of familiarity by using real landscapes. However, the fireworks-equipped drone disrupts the typical view of the scene, which Jodikin hopes will inspire people's imagination. While Jodikin has utilized drones in his work before, including for his AGFA Pont de Masque series, uh, Phenomena breaks new ground for the French artist, and the results are spectacular. Images from Phenomena will be on exhibit alongside more of Jodikin's light painting work in an upcoming show, Dimensions Lumieres, from May 20th through July 8th, 2023. The show will be hosted by Levog Centre d'Art, Contemporarian in Fontaine, France. Petapixel's light painting, a complete guide, delivers all the tips and techniques photographers need to try light painting for themselves. However, for advice on using drones for photography, photographers should read Petapixel's Drone Landscape Photography Guide. Petapixel has previously highlighted how photographers can use drones for light painting in its spotlight of Will Ferguson's brilliant work. More of Jodikin's work is available on his website and Instagram. And I highly encourage my listeners to swing by this article in the show notes and check out his amazing images for yourself. They are quite spectacular and beautiful to look at. He's got a really creative flair there with that series of photos using his drone. Photographer's moody landscapes capture the harsh winter in Finland. A photographer has sought to celebrate the cold, harsh landscape of his native Finland in a series of ethereal photos. Miko uh, Largenstead's breathtaking photos captured the Nordic country's bleakness, emphasizing the brisk conditions. Largenstead calls his series in the, in the Solitude, a project he shot over the last couple of years on a Nikon Z7 II with a Nikkor Z14-24 f2.8S, to 
and a Nikkor Z24-70 f2.8. Quote, while capturing landscapes, I try to be open and look for elements that evoke a sense of curiosity in me, Largus Dead tells Petapixel. Quote, I'm drawn to scenes with strong visual impact, whether a single tree or a vast landscape, or through the interplay of light and shadows, unique weather conditions, or compelling compositions. Logestad says that most of his photos are straight. The only composite, called Infinite, features the Aurora lights. Quote, my editing process primarily involves using Adobe Lightroom with my preset system and occasionally Photoshop, he says. I focus on enhancing the atmosphere and mood with different colors. I aim to create visually and emotionally captivating photographs that follow my style in editing. Largestad's scouts locations in advance and even traveled to Swedish Lapland for a few of the photos, but he allows for spontaneity. I also try to embrace unexpected opportunities. Being open to the moment often leads to the most captivating images, he says. Recently, I've been more open to allowing myself to be a complete beginner and seeing the scenarios in a different light. Finland is a country famous for winter, and Largestad believes its unique landscapes are often overlooked in photography. Quote, the title in the solitude reflects the quiet, introspective nature of the landscapes I sometimes capture with a person to emphasize the feeling of scale, he says. These scenes evoke a sense of peaceful solitude, but also show how a storm can bring isolation, inviting viewers to pause and reflect on the beauty, stillness, and power of the surrounding world. More of Lagerstedt's work can be found on his website, Facebook, and Instagram. And he does have some truly spectacular landscapes. Uh, Finland is actually a country I've always wanted to visit with my cameras, um, although I would have probably been better off going when I was quite a bit younger and I had much more tolerance for the cold. I'm not sure at my age how well I would fare and those frigid temperatures as I've gotten older. New wide-angle image shows the power of supermassive black hole. Radio astronomers have captured a novel wide-angle image of the famous giant black hole at the center of the galaxy, the Messier 87 or M87. M87's black hole is a popular target for astronomers. In 2019, the Event Horizon Telescope, or EHT, collaboration unveiled the first photo ever captured of a black hole. The same collaboration of more than 200 astronomers shared an incredible polarized view of the M87 black hole two years later. A new group of researchers developed a clever machine learning technique to improve that first iconic black hole image with artificial intelligence. As New York Times reports, now a third group of astronomers has taken a fresh look at M87, the giant elliptical galaxy 55 million light years from Earth that is a spectacularly powerful source of radio energy. This third international team, led by Ru Sen Lu from the Shanghai Observatory in China, has utilized a different global network of ob observatories, including the Global Millimeter LVBI Array, or GMVA, the uh, Octama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, ALMA in Chile, and the Greenland Telescope. This revised array has captured M87 with a fresh perspective, showing a more zoomed-out image that shows, for the first time, the base of the heavily observed jet of energy that particles and particles that shoot across space from M87's center.
The incredible new photo was published in Nature earlier this week. The paper described the team's use of a longer wavelength than the EHT team, 3.5 millimeters instead of 1.3, to better show the jet of energy emerging from near the black hole. Quote, at this wavelength, we can see how the jet emerges from the ring of emission around the central supermassive black hole, explains Thomas Crickbaum of the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy. We know that jets are ejected from the region surrounding black holes, but we still do not fully understand how this actually happens. To study this directly, we need to observe the origin of the jet as close as possible to the black hole, says Lou. Compared to the original EHT image, the ring observed by Lou's team is roughly 50% larger. The GMVA network comprises 14 radio telescopes in Europe and North America, plus two more facilities, the Greenland Telescope and ALMA. ALMA itself includes 66 antennas in Chile. The use of ALMA proved vital to the research. Thanks to AMLA's location and sensitivity, we could reveal the black hole shadow and see deeper into the emission of the jet at the same time, Lou explains. The new observations outlined in Nature were conducted in 2018. The team intends to perform future observations using the same network to further study how black holes can launch powerful energy jets. We plan to observe the region around the black hole at the center of M87 at different radio wavelengths to further study the emission of the jet. The coming years will be exciting as we will be able to learn more about what happens near one of the most mysterious regions in the universe, says Eduardo Rose from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy. Additional images and extensive scientific details are available in the team's paper, a ring-like accretion structure in M87 connecting its black hole and jet. And there are some beautiful images of the black hole in this article in the show notes, as well as some YouTube videos that you can check out for yourself. Definitely some incredible content to take in, and I highly recommend you give it a shot. All right, I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Liam Photo Podcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. This camera gives you a receipt instead of your photos. A novel camera design denies the photographer their pictures for months on end instead of print, instead printing out a receipt describing what's in the photo. The memogram created by student Jamie Herman prints out a ticket rather than a photo, listing the subjects in the picture and informs the photographer when they will be able to actually see their photo. The unique camera also acts like a disposable film camera in that the user can take a maximum of 36 images, forcing the shooter to think carefully when before pressing the shutter. The receipt is created after the photo has been uploaded to a web service where it is sent through a series of checks and neural network APIs to detect the objects in the image. 
As noted by Hackster, the artificial intelligence system will detect a person's age, gender, and even their emotional state. For group shots, the people are merely counted up. And for a photo with no people, the AI determines the subject of the photo and gives a text description. The memogram utilizes the most ubiquitous camera of all, a smartphone. The phone is placed into a paper case resembling a disposable camera, after which the shooter navigates to the memograph app and presses a physical shutter button to take a photo. Once the photo is captured, it is uploaded to the web service, but instead of seeing the photo right away, the photographer gets the ticket instead. The physical receipt comes from a thermal printer that communicates with the phone via Bluetooth using the Arduino Pro Mini V5V board mounted to a custom circuit board or PCB. An Adafruit Bluetooth LE UART friend handles the Bluetooth communication aspect. The receipt includes a description of what is in the photo, along with things like the time and location, which adds up the total amount of days the photographer has to wait to see their photo. Haxter reports that it could be anything from 20 to 90 days. Once the time has elapsed, the photographer can view their photo on the web app by entering the password that is also printed out on the receipt. The project's website can be viewed at this link in the article in today's show notes. That is kind of an odd take on a camera. I guess it kind of uh, is a nod back to the time you'd have to wait after you shot film until you got it developed by a lab and then got the photos back. Although I don't recall it ever taking 20 to 90 days to get a roll of film developed. So a little bit odd, but hey, at least they're being creative. So you got to give them that. Shooting color and black and white film at the same time? There are a lot of crazy ideas out there when it comes to experimental photography. Multiple exposures, film soups, shooting your rolls backwards. But have you ever heard of anybody loading two rolls of film into a camera at the same time? Me neither. And that's exactly why I'm going to do it. The idea in a nutshell is to figure out a way to get a color roll and a black and white roll of 35 millimeter film loaded into my Nikon F3 so that each press of the shutter exposes both films at the same time. After they were developed, I could possibly stack or layer the developed negatives for a cool effect, hopefully. Going into this experiment, I figured I'd have some problems to solve. The first would be getting to getting the correct exposure for the black and white roll because the light has to not only expose the front roll, but also travel through the front roll to expose the second roll behind it. After finding out how much light reduction occurs when it travels through film, I'll offset each film's ISO to match however many stops I need. Another obvious problem is that film cameras are designed to handle one roll at a time, and well, that's not what I'm doing here. So going into this, I anticipated some binding issues or maybe even some ripped film. It's worth noting that the winder on the F3 is so diesel, I've torn film leaders off a single roll before let alone adding the additional resistance of two rolls. Finally, I assumed that doing this would mess with the image sharpness of both the front and the back rolls in some capacity. Sandwiching two films into a camera will move the front film slightly out of alignment from the plane of focus, and the back film will be obstructed by the front roll, possibly delivering mush images. So let's just set the bar nice and low here. Do I expect tack sharp pictures? Nope. If I come away with a few frames that were lined up and exposed all the way through, I'll consider that a win. If cramming two rolls of film into one canister sounds really awkward and like a big pain, you'd be right. It is. 
I tried a few different ways of getting both films rolled into one canister. I figured the best way to prevent the two sandwich films from getting caught when advancing was to make sure the edges lined up perfectly. Doing this in the dark would be nearly impossible, so I had to come up with a way to start the rolls into the, into the canister with the lights on. What I ended up doing was using an empty canister to transfer the roll of Fujicolor 200 into temporarily uh, temporarily while still attached to its own canister. This temporary transfer was done in a dark closet so the film wasn't ruined. But then I could access the end of the Fujicolor's roll in the light to line up and tape on the second film. This other roll would be T-Max P3200 black and white and when in the camera would be placed behind the roll of Fujicolor 200 against the pressure plate. After everything was lined up and taped together, I went back into the dark closet, wound as much of the two films into the canister as I could fit, and cut off the excess. Using this method, I was able to load about 20 frames into the canister using two 36 exposure rolls. Surprisingly, turning the spindle with two back-to-back -back rolls was a little stiff, but not impossible. With both films loaded into one cassette, I took a few attempts to get the leader right. At first, I tried cutting a double leader starting both films on the winder, but that ended up creating a gap at the advancing spindle and a ripple between the films. What ended up working was cutting the rear film leader off straight and taping it just behind the other leader of the front roll. The reason I chose to put the color film in the front and the black and white film towards the back is that I thought this would deliver a better end result. I wouldn't have to worry about color shifting like I would if I had the light travel through the black and white roll first. Okay, so the camera is loaded and the hard part is complete. After some initial tests with my light meter, I measured about a three-stop light reduction through film. For my first attempt, I grabbed a roll of Kodak Ultramax 400 and Fomapan 400 to stack. To get my three-stop difference between the two films, I decided to shoot the Ultramax at box speed and pull the roll of Foma Pan Holga to ISO 50. Unfortunately, this first run turned out to be a bust. While the color Ultramac images turned out fine, the black and white roll didn't have any images exposed. It looks like I would need more light to make it through the front roll of film. Uh, wow. I can see from the exposure on the Foma, uh, Foma Pan negatives that there was definitely an issue with the two films not staying flat or aligning properly in the camera as well. And you can see the images of this in this article in the show notes. Okay, so round two, I needed more light to hit the back film, so I increased the ISO difference between the front and back films. This time, I used a roll of Fujicolor 200 and Kodak T-Max P3200. I rated these shots at 100, overexposing the Fujicolor slightly while developing the roll of T-Max at 3200. To fix the binding issue, I cut back the rear film so there was only one starter leader, the Fujicolor, getting advanced by the sprocket wheel. I think the problem was that when both films were attached to the winder, it was creating a bow and a space between the front and back rolls. After loading and shooting 18 frames of the Fujicolor T-Max rolls, I was happy to see this time was a success. Kind of. <laughs> wow, what a lot to go through. Uh, with this attempt, again, the front roll of color film came out fine, but now with a five-stop difference between the two rolls, I had actual images on the black and roll of black and white film. These images were still several stops below a correct exposure, but still, they came through. In the sharpness department, I didn't see that much of a difference in the Fuji images, but the T-Max was a different story. There was significant blurring combined with excessive blotchiness of the grain from the underexposure. 
Basically, the black and white shots looked like I was shooting a pinhole image without using a pinhole camera. Also, I was given a nice reminder that I need to change the door seals on my F3. To merge the two negatives in Photoshop, I stacked them together as layers and then used the transform tool to get the alignment as close as I could. I placed the color layer on top and changed the blend mode to color to composite the images together. The color blend mode in Photoshop ignores differences in luminosity between your adjustment layer and your base layer, so it transfers the color from the Fuji negative onto the T-Max negative just like it would have been inside the camera. However, because the T-Max shots are, were underexposed, directly merging the two films reduced the overall brightness. The shadow areas looked a bit weird and mushy from applying color on top of something that had no detail. I got a much better result using some of the contrast-based blend modes because they adjust the luminosity of the merged images. Soft light looked similar to the color blend mode when merging the two films, but helped out the difference in exposure between the two rolls. Pin light and hard light blend modes created something that almost reminded me of a cross-process image. Oh my goodness. Another option I tried that looked interesting was not using blend modes, but just adjusting the opacity of the color layer down to about 50%. When I was initially planning this experiment, I wondered if the final stacked images would create some kind of neat separation or 3D effect. While the technique didn't deliver perfect results that jump out of the frame, I'd still consider it a success. It's worth noting that there's probably a more technical way to go about doing this, but I enjoy tinkering around and just messing with things until they work. A big part of the fun for me with any film experiment is all about trial and error. Of course, there's still plenty of room for improvement here, but after just a few attempts, I'm able to get images on both rolls without them jamming up the camera, so that's an awesome starting point in my book. And this article is by Chris Kuhn. He's a photographer and YouTuber who creates content about film photography. You can find more of his work on his website, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Uh, definitely some interesting ways to do this. And you can check out his images in this article in the show notes. They are definitely interesting, to say the least. Although I don't think I'd want to attempt that particular experiment. <laughs> Yvonne, an introduction to the women who pioneered color photography. The National Portrait Gallery London reopens in June following a three-year closure for the largest redevelopment in its 127-year history. Its opening exhibition, Yvonne, a life in color, will be the most comprehensive to date on British photographer Yvonne Middleton from 1893 to 1975. Citing her work simply Yvonne, though she also worked under Madame Yvonne, she was a celebrated portraitist, innovative colorist, and advocate for women in the profession. In short, she was a pioneer, yet Yvonne is not widely known outside photography circles. In 1921, she became the first woman to lecture at the Professional Photographers Association. In the 1930s, against a tide of resistance, she championed the use of color photography and was the first person in Britain to exhibit color portraits. Over a 60-year career, Yvonne photographed the rich and famous. Around 10,000 sitters passed through her studios. She also ran a successful commercial photography business until the year before her death, shortly before her 83rd birthday. From her teens, Yvonne was an advocate of women's suffrage and was, an act, was active in the Women's Social and Political Union, the militant wing of the suffrage movement from 1909. However, a personal 
disinclination for suffrage, uh, suffragette law breaking and the prison sentence that would likely follow led her to champion women's emancipation via a different route. In her autobiography, In Camera, 1940, she remembers thinking at age 17, quote, I must earn my own living to be independent was the greatest thing in life. It was an advertisement in suffrage newspaper, Votes for Women, that gave Yvonne the idea that photography could offer economic independence. Yvonne's only formal training was an apprenticeship to the Charlotte Lyell Charles, 1911 to 1913. Despite not finishing and taking only one photograph throughout, it gave her the fundamentals to start a photographic business. In 1914, having just turned 21 with some funding from her family, she opened her first studio. Yvonne's decision to set out on her own coincided with the decline of Leal Charles Studio. This reflected a widespread malaise in photographic portraiture, which was at that time stylistically confined to long-established conventions of black and white. She explained that clients were getting tired of the pale, soft prints, tired of the artificial noses of the empire furniture. They grumbled at the lack of variety in the poses. Seeing an opportunity to try something different, she developed a more dynamic approach and style, establishing a moderately successful business despite the disruption of the First World War and a stint as a land worker. But it was with the advent of Vivex, a technically demanding process for coloring photographs around 1930, that Yvonne's breakthrough came, despite strong resistance to color photography from within the profession and potential clients. Quote, I started experimenting madly, she remembered in her autobiography, oblivious of the fact that people did not want such things. She believed that photographers had become, quote, so engrossed in the beauty of light and shade and in their deep velvety blacks and sparkling whites that they will tell you quite seriously that the color photograph is unnecessary and unnatural. At the same time, Gabon was excited to discover that a few studios were beginning to explore the new process despite feeling that their preoccupation with achieving naturalistic color rendered everything astonishingly, astonishingly unattractive. She declared that her priority was to use color differently to produce a striking original picture. Yvonne's most famous project, the Goddess series of 1935, was inspired by a charity ball. Soon after, she photographed several society women in the guise of mythological goddess, each woman was furnished with props derived from Yvonne's sometimes whimsical interpretation of their attributes. For me, the series reveals both the extent and the limits of her pioneering spirit. Despite her attempts to renegotiate the conventions of her time, Yvonne, uh, Yvonne ever the expedient businesswoman, was mindful of her clients' wishes, the majority of whom were female. As a result, many of her subjects aligned with the prevailing expectations of beauty and behavior, looking sultry, but with a submissive air gazing wistfully out of the frame. But in other examples, the women she photographed appeared liberated from the shackles of expectations for their sex. There's daring composition and movement in the representation of Ariel and the confrontational gaze of Medusa. In other work, an audacious set of saturated primary color is highly effective, as in the portrait of actress Vivian Lee. In her photograph of actress Jung Maud, a vibrant palette of reds is brought together in a single image. This shows an industrious photographer thrilled with the possibilities offered by the new color technology. 
Sadly, with the outbreak of the Second World War, Vivex ceased trading and Yvonne was obliged to return to black and white. Throughout her career, Yvonne sought to promote and motivate other women photographers, encouraging them to come out and meet one another and to join the Association of Photographers. Quote, we must see one another's work and criticize, and more important still, receive criticism, she wrote in her autobiography, or we shall never improve. Most previous exhibitions have favored Yvonne's Goddess series. The planned show at the reopened Portrait Gallery, however, will broaden the scope considerably and include some newly discovered works. As much as I love Yvonne's use of color, I'm looking forward to seeing her later portraits in black and white and her practice of bringing elements of surrealism into her portraiture and other commercial work. Yvonne Life in Color will be at the National Portrait Gallery from the 22nd of June to the 15th of October, 2023. And there are some beautiful images of hers in this article in the show notes that I highly encourage my listeners to check out for themselves. And last for this week, fantastic winners of the 2022 One Island Photography Awards. One Island has announced the winners of the One Island Photography Awards 2022. Grand prize winners in the professional and amateur sections were awarded cash prizes of $5,000 and $2,000, respectively. A jury of 29 artists judged over 3,600 images from 55 countries. The judges awarded 30 camera trophies plus hundreds of gold, silver, and bronze awards. The judging panel evaluates images doling out points based on finishing position across respective categories. Gold awards earn photographers 20 points, while silver and bronze awards are worth 10 and 5 points, respectively. Finally, earning the, earning the finalist designation added two points to a photographer's total. Photographers earned 33 gold, 141 silver, 296 bronze, and 230 finalist awards in the contest. Thai photographer Jeanapat uh, Jacques Moy uh, Ketvrad earned the title Photographer of the Year, and Bulgarian photographer Yuli Va- uh, Veselev was named Amateur Photographer of the Year. Photographers can enter a maximum of 10 entries across the competition's various subcategories, including advertising, editorial, fine art, nature, people, sports, special, and more. Professional photographer uh, Ketvradit earned 130 points, beating out second-place finisher Andre Bodo by 15 points, and the third-place finisher Azim Khan Rani by 28 points. Yuli Vaselev earned 49 points to win the amateur category with photographers Sadish Nair, 38 points, and Nana Hank, 31 points, rounding out the top three. By the way, it's worth noting that in last year's competition, uh, Ketrebik, earned the title Amateur Photographer of the Year with a winning score of 45 points. And there are some beautiful images uh, from this competition in this article in the show notes that I highly recommend you check out. Some beautiful compositions and some unique photos, for sure, of all of the talented photographers that entered the competition. Now, the comprehensive list of all 700-plus winners of the One Island Photography Awards 2022 is available on One Island. People can see every awarded image across all categories from the lengthy list. Entries for the 2023 One Island Photo Contest are now open. The website also hosts pictures of the day, week, and month contest and maintains an active ranking of its contributing photographers. And that is wrapping up all of the news for this week. 
Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 337 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. If you're not currently a subscriber, why not? It doesn't cost you a thing, and I have a massive catalog of episodes that you can go back and listen to at your leisure to fill in some of that time during your workday or doing chores around the house or as you're driving to and from work, or maybe driving on the weekend to visit family and friends, you can put the show on and just kick back and listen for hours and hours with the massive back catalog that the show has currently. Now, again, later on today, I will be sitting down with Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake, formerly of DP Review TV. They're now at Petapixel TV. It'll be nice to get a chance to finally sit down with these two super talented gentlemen and talk to them about their careers and how they got started in photography and videography and how they ended up doing YouTube videos. They started out with the camera store TV years ago, uh, which is a local camera store where they live in Calgary, uh, Canada. And then they switched over to DP Review, and now the DP Review is shuttering. They're moved over to Petapixel. They will be releasing their first official Petapixel video, besides the teaser one they already posted. Uh, They will start posting new videos for Petapixel tomorrow, Monday, May 1st. So if you're not already subscribed to their channel, go ahead and give it a subscribe. Also, remember to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. There will be a new video out later on today. I put out a couple of videos this past week. Actually, I think I put out two shorts and a long form video that you can check out. I did a review of the Dehancer film plugin pack. Uh, for photo editing, which gives you old school 35 millimeter film profiles or film simulations similar to what Fuji has built into their cameras. So you definitely want to go check out that video. Feel free to leave a comment or a like, share it out. Also remember to join the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. If you have any questions about any of the content of any of the episodes, go ahead and comment in the episodes post in the Facebook group. All right, that's it, everybody. I'll be back on Thursday with Chris and Jordan.